0: Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C and drug user health. My name is Lauren Walker, and I'm the Program Director for the Hepatitis C and Drug User Health Center of Excellence at CEI. On today's episode, I'll talk with Dr. Sharon Stancliffe and Lisa Skill about xylazine, a drug used in veterinary medicine as a sedative with analgesic and muscle relaxant properties. Although not approved for use in humans, it's appearing more frequently in street drugs across the United States. Today, it's being used to heighten the effects of opioids and other central nervous system depressants and stimulants, and is being identified in doses of fentanyl and heroin, likely to amplify or lengthen their effects. Xylazine was first reported in Puerto Rico in the early 2000s, followed by Philadelphia, where it was added to the Medical Examiner's Office toxicology reports in 2006. It has since spread nationwide and currently poses a significant threat to public health. The presence of Xylazine was officially noted in New York City in 2017, after an analysis of syringes obtained by the Department of Health were found to contain the substance. Since then, counties throughout the state, including Monroe and Tompkins, among others, have sounded similar alarms that xylazine has made its way into the local drug supply. In November 2022, the FDA issued a nationwide warning to healthcare professionals to be cautious of possible xylazine inclusion in fentanyl, heroin, and other illicit drug overdoses. I am honored to introduce today's guests who will help us review the basics of xylazine and talk about what clinicians in New York State need to know and can do to support their clients who use or may come into contact with the substance. My first guest, Dr. Sharon Stancliffe is Associate Medical Director for Harm Reduction in Health Care at the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute and an attending physician at Project Renewal, where she provides care for people with opioid use disorder. Dr. Stancliffe has been working with people who use drugs since 1990, including the development of overdose prevention programs, provision of primary care for people who use drugs, substance use disorder treatment, HIV care, and harm reduction services. Her current focus is on opioid overdose prevention through expanding access to buprenorphine and naloxone in primary care and less traditional healthcare settings such as syringe service programs. Dr. Stancliffe maintains board certification in family medicine and addiction medicine. I'm also joined today by Lisa Skill, a health program coordinator at the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute's Office of Drug User Health, where she works on the Buprenorphine Access Initiative and oversees the Provider Education Initiative. Prior to her work at the Department of Health, Lisa coordinated the Empire State Public Health Training Center, or PHTC, and served as co-chair for the National PHTC coordinator network. She also worked as a senior trainer for an HIV and drug user health training center of expertise funded through the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute, as a training consultant for the female health company, and as a harm reduction specialist for a federally qualified health center. Ms. Skill holds a master's of science degree in community health education and is a master certified health education specialist accredited through the National Commission for Health Education Credentialing. Welcome to the show, Lisa and Sharon. How are you both doing today? I'm doing well, hopeful about a new year. I'm doing well also. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year to you. And thanks again for joining me on today's episode. Let's dive right in with you introducing our listeners to xylazine or reminding them what it is. What does it look like and how is it used? Okay. So
1: Xylazine is a non-opioid medication, which is relevant to some of what we'll talk about with overdose. And it's a veterinary medicine. It's used as a sedative and a muscle relaxant. It is not approved for any use in humans. However, over the years, starting back in Puerto Rico in the, the early 2000s, it's been added to street drugs, almost always at this time found alongside fentanyl. So it basically found in opioids. It is generally sold as a liquid, but it can be sold as a powder. And then the person who's adding it to drug will what's called salt it and turn it into a powder. So it blends in with powdered street drugs. It's rarely taken alone. We'll come back to that later. It can be ingested by injecting both intravenously, intramuscularly, subcutaneously, sniffing or snorting swallowing, and we've got a little less data on smoking and vaping, but
0: probably so. What would be the street names used for xylazine that clinicians might hear from their patients?
1: Well, what we hear from Puerto Rico is Trank. Oh, I'm just losing my pronunciation, but animal anesthetic. Trank Dope. I have not heard... Terms for it in New York City, aside from people that lived in Puerto Rico at some point. Lisa, can you add to that?
2: I can let you know that from what we're hearing from folks through the Harm Reduction Coalition that do work a lot with folks that use drugs, that, yeah, I think mostly trank and trank dope are the terms that have been used.
1: Yeah, so far I I see patients, and so far none of them have heard of it. Now they are all in treatment for their opioid
0: use disorder, but many of them are still using. Interesting. And on that note, what's been your experience as a clinician? Have Have you come into contact with clients who are using or has it been similar to what you said, where it's, it's so new that some of your clients haven't even heard of it? I probably have come into
1: contact with it. And I don't think that my patients or clients know what they're getting. But sometimes they tell me about really getting zonked out for a long period of time. So it makes me wonder what I'm actually seeing. I guess we'll talk about epidemiology in a few minutes. I did have the experience of going to Puerto Rico in maybe 2007 when it was really ubiquitous in the heroin supply. At that time, presumably heroin, not fentanyl. And the skin wounds that I saw were astonishing and truly horrifying. I won't go too far down that road, but I traveled to a lot of low-income countries where heroin was used as part of my work. And I've never seen anything like Puerto Rico at that time.
0: Lisa, I'm interested to hear your experience too from, from the non-clinical side at the Office of Drug User Health and what you are seeing in terms of epidemiology and reports of use from the people that you work with.
2: I would say that it's pretty similar to what Sharon is sharing, but what we do know is that some folks are have not really had much awareness around it, but then we've also heard from other folks that they do have some serious concerns, especially those folks that have friends or loved ones that have dealt with some of the wounds that Sharon has brought up—the the skin infections and and so I, I and many of them have have actually asked questions about what is xylazine exactly. So I think from the non clinical side, it's so clearly important for clinicians to be aware that xylazine is out there, even though. Many of the reports that we have heard have come from like Philadelphia, Maryland, and Connecticut. It is present in the drug supply and that New York State data is forthcoming, but there are reports in New York City, Syracuse, Rochester, and other parts of the state where testing is being conducted. So it's crucial for clinicians to be aware and be able to talk with their patients about xylazine.
1: Maybe we should talk a little bit about testing for xylazine.
0: I'd love that. What are the options?
1: <laughs> so that's a very complicated area at this point, and so that's part of why we don't have a lot of good data. Xylazine is metabolized very, very quickly, so it is hard to pick up in urine toxicology. We it's it's not created for human use, so there probably are labs that could add it on, but if it's transient in the urine, one will miss a lot testing that way. There are currently xylazine strips that apparently were created for urine in circulation. It's a bit of a confusing situation because they have some level of approval, but all of the experts I consult about xylazine have different experiences. Those may become available for us to distribute to patients and to use in various settings. Right now, there are people working on validating them at Johns Hopkins and at, at the Philadelphia Department of Health I'm hoping that they will be useful, but I really wouldn't know what to do with them just at this point. So that means the data that we get is from law enforcement doing actual drug checking. And we get a little of that data. We don't have much from New York at this point. We we see how ubiquitous it is, ubiquitous it is in Maryland and Philadelphia. And we've seen reports from New Jersey. And then we get data from autopsies. So those are pretty or sources of data in terms of getting a good surveillance. One perhaps trivial tidbit is that somehow xylazine is used in doping horses for racing. So one of my projects right now is to find veterinarians that are are racetrack experts and see what their testing techniques are.
2: Another challenge with xylazine diagnostic testing is that even with appropriate testing, xylazine may not be detected due to it's rapid elimination from the body which could be with a half life of 25 to 30 minutes
1: yeah and overdoses that metabolism doesn't happen so much but if it's just somebody that's coming in and they used this morning and it's now 2 in the afternoon i may not see anything at all and to be clear why would i want to test my patients for xylazine i would want to test them so i could tell them what's in it we added fentanyl testing to our panel several years ago because we wanted to tell our patients about it and it doesn't change a whole lot of how we prescribe the buprenorphine we're seeing them for. It's just a matter of helping our patients understand.
0: So understanding that it wouldn't be for a surveillance purpose, what are the physical signs of xylazine intoxication? How would you know as a clinician that your patient may have used the substance recently?
1: I would not really be able to tell it from any other sedative. First of all, xylazine is almost always seen with fentanyl. The number of cases out there of xylazine toxicity only because of itself is actually really, really small. People don't tend to take xylazine for fun. Some people do try it out. It's generally associated with veterinary offices. And deaths are very rare. Respiratory depression is a thing, but it's not like fentanyl and opioids. Usually if there's going to be xylazine, there's going to be fentanyl and opioid on board. It looks like. Any other sedative and that they'll be nodding and very likely having respiratory depression because of the associated drugs. The thing that might distinguish it moving ahead is it lasts much longer. That's one of the reasons people apparently like xylazine. If they do is it makes the more short acting fentanyl last longer. People talk about giving it legs. And so the sedation may last a lot longer, but. It's not, you can't really tell somebody's having an overdose from what just by looking at them, even if you're an ER doc. You make a decision to give them naloxone because it might be that.
0: So from what I'm hearing, it's definitely possible to overdose on xylazine.
1: Is that correct? It's possible to overdose on xylazine alone? Yes. Okay. Overdose deaths from xylazine alone are really rare. There is one paper that looks at about 98 cases of toxicity. One person died and they had actually mixed it with a lot of benzos and I believe it was a suicide attempt. That being said, xylazine potentiates opioids. How much? We don't really know, but it's probably akin to benzodiazepines or alcohol in that it raises the risk of respiratory depression and respiratory cessation.
0: And would it be safe to say that the physical signs of a xylosine overdose are, again, similar to other sedatives and the person might be unresponsive? Oh,
1: absolutely. The, the person, would well, if they're overdosing, that's practically by definition unresponsive, but determining which drugs are involved is something nobody should spend time doing and acting on it and not something that, as far as I know, anyone can do.
0: What would be the appropriate clinical response to a xylazine overdose then? Do any medications exist similar to naloxone for opioid use disorder and opioid overdose?
1: No, there is nothing known to be safe for humans to reverse the effects of xylazine. We'll come back to that in a moment, but the treatment for that is entirely supportive. And I think there's a few things that we need to add on to what we do for opioid overdose responses in the field to consider. So if one thinks one is witnessing an overdose, naloxone, hopefully call 911. We know many people don't want to call 911, but if the sedation doesn't reverse, we really need to encourage people to call 911 a little bit more than usual because they may need more support. So naloxone will reverse the effects of the opioid, but it will not touch the sedation associated with the xylazine as far as we know. So we will have This person who may be breathing and that's as far as we're going to get with the naloxone. It may be that they don't need more naloxone and that more naloxone will do anything for them. What they really need is to have their airway opened. Xylosine being a muscle relaxant may relax the throat muscles more. So we need to get back to this idea of airway when we're seeing an opioid overdose. Many of us have heard and observed. That now that we have ready access to easily given nasal naloxone, people tend to just grab the next naloxone rather than concentrate on the airway and breathing for them, particularly because we have a pandemic. So we do need to add to our education a little bit to get people working on making sure the airway is clear and considering depending on various factors, respiratory support while waiting to see if the naloxone will do the trick. To quote an ER doc from Albany, it's about respiration, not conversation. And that might be something we really need to emphasize. Too much naloxone is better than not enough, but there are indications in the medical literature and from harm reduction sources that overusing naloxone may be associated with more respiratory complications from an overdose.
0: So after a person overdoses or if they are a chronic xylazine user is there a possibility to experience withdrawal and what would that look like if if it does exist
1: like so many things with xylazine we are relying on anecdotal reports from physicians from patients or people attending harm reduction. But yes, there appears to be pretty clearly a withdrawal syndrome. And we've known a little bit about it for many years. This withdrawal symptom set of symptoms is vague. There's dysphoria, there's anxiety, but it needs to be treated. We are seeing that people are having, in other places, harder times getting through opioid Medical, medically managed opioid withdrawal, hopefully to transition to something like methadone or buprenorphine, that they may be leaving sites earlier because of this added discomfort with the xylazine withdrawal. And another piece about xylazine withdrawal is that it can be associated with significant hypertension. I think most of us clinicians are pretty familiar with the old fashioned clonidine that is an antihypertensive that if we maintain people on that and they stop taking it, they may have rebound hypertension. So that's another thing that we need to be thinking about. So it does need to be managed. Clonidine does, seems to work. Denzodiazepine, some of the other alpha-adrenergic agonists seem to work. But it, it is something to be paid attention to if we're going to give appropriate care to our patients.
0: I heard you mention earlier, Sharon, the importance of harm reduction, especially with the lack of evidence and the lack of effective treatments. I'm wondering, what, what would you recommend? Are there particular harm reduction strategies that clinicians could or should use?
1: First of all, it would be really nice if we can inform our patients of what is in the drugs. But I neglected to mention one big ray of hope on that is that many of these syringe access programs, health hubs around the state will have or already have point of care mass spectroscopy to test drugs so that people can go in the door, not sacrifice a lot of their drug and find out what's in it. What will people do with that information? Well, people make a whole variety of choices with that information. We can all read the ingredients on our medical medicine bottles. People should have the right to know what they are taking. So that that I think is encouraging people to go use those sources. There may be within six months many such sites around the state. So ASAS is working on it too. So that's a piece of harm reduction that we could all begin to participate in. Hopefully the the strips are useful, but they won't give as much quantitative information. We really need to think about the skin wounds, and maybe we should just make that a separate section in a minute. But we need to think about the. Skin skin wounds and get early treatment for them. In terms of harm reduction for how we talk to our patients, they need to know that xylazine is there, that it may last a lot longer, that it is associated with the skin wounds. So some of the just the real basics, injection hygiene, if that is how they're they're using drugs. Most of the skin wounds are associated with injection, but we're not totally sure of that. Having naloxone, using it, I gave a little guidance on that a little bit earlier. Now this is a tough one because if somebody doesn't get pretty responsive, I don't even not using the word alert after getting naloxone and a potential overdose, really they probably should go to the hospital. That being said, people that have had azilazine-associated overdose don't move around very much. And we've seen things like rhabdomyolysis from being in a position too long, which then can lead to a big release of potassium and cardiac arrhythmias. We've seen nerve damage when people, I and mean, this is a classic, somebody from any drug used to be alcohol more has their arms slung over the back of a chair for several hours that can do a lot of damage to the nerves and people can have some paralysis that resolves over the course of months. So trying to think about how to teach people that positioning, I think is a challenge. Lisa, what did I miss?
2: Just some of the basic stuff like starting low and going slow, some of the basic harm reduction messages. You mentioned about testing your product, but maybe altering the way you ingest it, maybe sniffing versus injecting is safer. Also, just not using alone, trying to avoid using alone and making sure that if you're using in a group to stagger you use so someone is always alert. Some of those basic things, because of the heavy sedation, be aware of surroundings and possessions, especially if you're not somewhere that's in a secure location.
1: Yeah, there have been assaults and thefts associated with the very long knot. In fact, I wonder if one or more of my patients might have experienced that. They definitely have experienced the theft, whether or not it was associated with the length Mm -hmm. of what they were taking, I don't know.
0: You've both mentioned the skin wounds. I feel like we've missed this piece. What should clinicians be looking for? And Sharon, you answered this question already, but are they directly related to injecting xylazine or is there a chance that it is some type of impact of using the substance?
1: Another complicated issue that so much of our information comes from word of mouth. I Did mention earlier that we can see some pretty horrible skin wounds with this if they're not tended too early. We're used to abscesses with injecting, maybe some cellulitis, but these tend to be ulcerations that can grow larger and larger. Are they associated with injecting? There's reports, but again, it's anecdotal that some people seem to develop these without injecting. But what is clear is that they tend to be on the extensors, the arms and the bottom of the legs, And not necessarily associated with the site of injection at all. The etiology is a mystery. I'm not aware of any dermatological reports on them. People talk about, could it be vasculitis? Maybe people inject into the site more. I've certainly heard that, but I don't think that's a good reason for it. We need to take care of those early. People need to, both as clinicians need to know what to do and harm reduction settings need to let people know what to do. If these ulcerations begin to develop, soap and water is most likely best. I'm quoting a wound care nurse in Maryland right now and several others. But soap and water is probably much better than alcohol and all those other things that were tempted to dump into wounds. They are weepy, so there should be a non-adherent dressing. You don't want to have it scab over and then you're pulling that off. So a non-adherent dressing, zero form is, is one brand of it, I'm covered probably by a more absorbent dressing because they can be weepy. It's great if they don't progress very much, but they could progress to the point they need chemical or surgical debridement, which I don't pretend to be an expert in and and probably not something to do at home. But early care is important. Um, They can be awful. I've heard that in Philadelphia or Maryland, some drug treatment programs don't feel like they can admit people because the wounds are so bad and they don't know how to do the skin care. This is my biggest
0: fear about psilazine coming in. Lisa, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what's in the future for New York State and what the Office of Drug User Health has in store for us in terms of addressing the increased reports of xylazine.
2: I would say well right now what we're working on is we are working on an FAQ for clinicians on xylazine we are that includes everything that we're talking about today talking about bringing into it like why should clinicians be concerned the diagnostic testing challenges presentation and management of xylazine wound care harm reduction messages So we're working on that. We are also working with you at the Center of Excellence, the Drug User Health Center of Excellence, with the trainings that are going to be coming out. We are also going to be, we're working with folks in our data unit who are going to be putting out a data brief on xylazine and attaching all of these resources to that. And Really, right now, we are also in the midst of actually overhauling our website so that our website will also have more of emerging issues and versus for emerging issues such as xylosine.
0: Wonderful.
1: And we mentioned earlier the the testing that I hope between the Office of Drug User Health and ALASAS will become common around New York. It's really exciting.
0: Testing and data. I'm very excited for both of those, just to be aware of what the problem is before we can dive in and try to solve it.
1: I wish that we worked harder on it in the 2000s when it was affecting Puerto Rico.
0: Yes, exactly. Problem and not
1: not properly cared
0: for. You've both mentioned a few things that clinicians and communities also can do to support people who use xylazine or may come into contact with it. I'm wondering if you have any other options. I know there's a hotline available 24-7 called Never Use Alone that folks who may not have someone they're using with can call. Are there other places that you would send your clients or things that you would recommend that they do that are available in New York?
1: Absolutely. This is all about opioids. That's what we're talking about with xylosine. Get on to medications for opioid use disorder. Many places don't require that you can... No place should require that one completely stop using. Some places are much more low threshold in that way. But people should have the option to manage their dependence on opioids, even if they don't want to stop using them. The X waiver that required clinicians to register with the DEA and to get training is gone now. So clinicians across the state, as long as they are registered with the DEA to prescribe to humans for controlled substances, they can prescribe buprenorphine too. And I hope that will lead to a big change in how we help people with opioid use disorder.
0: It's also worth pointing out or noting that New York also has a standing order for naloxone in pharmacies. So I personally don't know if every pharmacy is following the rule, but technically you should be able to go into a pharmacy and receive naloxone. Important for folks to know about. Absolutely. Thank you. Actually, because Dr. Mary Bassett has left us, we switched that
1: standing order back to my name and we will be sending, hopefully promoting that some more. Yes. Anybody should be able to go to a pharmacy if they have insurance and if there's a copay associated with the naloxone, the state will cover the copay. The Very easily done, both for the pharmacist and the patient, it's completely behind the scenes. As long as the pharmacy signed up for the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, they just put it in their machine, no coupons, no mail-in things for reimbursement, it just goes right through. And then we have multiple sites where people can get it at no cost at all, which can be seen on the Department of Health website, including mail-order naloxone.
2: I would also add that for folks who are in New York City, they can certainly visit the safer consumption sites in the New York City area on point with, they have locations in both Washington Heights and East Harlem. And also identifying, if you're not in New York City, identifying those drug user health hubs and syringe
0: service programs throughout New York State that are available. Positive to know that even though we don't have a solution, there are things that can be done as we continue to understand the substance and and what we can do clinically to address it.
1: We've got a long way to go, but I think we're pretty lucky in New York to have as many resources as we do.
0: Absolutely. As we wrap up with today's episode, I'd like each of you to share three key takeaways about Xylazine, the future of New York State, and what it's doing to address Xylazine, anything from our conversation today that you'd like our listeners to really take home with you. Lisa, if I can put you on the spot, we'll have you go first.
2: Sure. I would say harm reduction. Really understand harm reduction messages for your patients and how xylazine impacts. Also, really having an understanding of wound care, and that goes for folks that work in harm reduction programs or in other types of programs. Wound care is is a crucial part of this also. And make sure you carry naloxone.
0: And Sharon,
1: what about from you? It's kind of hard to beat the. I would say that awareness and letting patients know what might be in their drugs is really important, but not punishing them because you found it in their, their toxicology. We just need to keep people in care, whether it's medical care or substance use care. We need to keep people in care so they come to us when they have those wounds or dependents. I will, again, underline harm reduction. That's really key. And for those that are in public health that might be listening, getting in touch with your local health department or the state health department about what you're seeing. We need better surveillance and anecdotal reports are really useful at this time.
0: Thank you both again for joining me today. This has been very informative for me and, and I hope our listeners as well. I really appreciate your, your sharing your expertise with us and learning more about this as, as the data comes out. Thank you for having us. It was fun. Thank you so much. It was fun. After talking with Lisa and Sharon, it's clear that there's still a lot we don't know about xylozine. While we have a long way to go before we fully understand the substance, I'm optimistic about the numerous harm reduction programs, clinical supports, and other resources we have here in New York State. As we continue to work towards clinical and epidemiological understanding, as well as long-term surveillance, we can and should teach clients what we know about xylazine and how to manage substance-related wounds. We can also refer folks to syringe service programs to have their drugs tested for xylazine before use or if they're in New York City, to one of two safe consumption sites operated by OnPoint NYC. As Sharon mentioned, all of this is about meeting people where they are and giving them the dignity and autonomy to make their own health decisions, whether they include sobriety or not. I'm looking forward to the upcoming Department of Health data brief, FAQ, and clinical education opportunities around Xylazine to continue to push the needle in the right direction. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.